Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter number three. Uh, Romans chapter number three. We're continuing this little sermon, uh, sermon series that we're doing in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans. That's just a wonderful, amazing book. Some call the book of Romans the Constitution of Christianity. And it's an amazing book. Let me ask you do something. If you, you're there already at the book of Romans chapter number three, let me ask you to do something for me. I, on the count of three, I want you to snap your fingers. We're going to do it in unison, okay? You're going to be like you're part of the Marine Corps silent drill team. You can do it, okay? One, two, three. Now, I, are we clapping on, I mean, snapping on three? Or is it three and snap? Which is it? Tell me. On three? Three and snap. One, okay, one, one on three. How about that? That's better. One, two, three. All right, let's do it again. One, two, three. You know, uh, even me trying to figure out like what, how we should do it, you know, there's some indecision there. What if I asked you at the snap of a finger what you would change about the world? What you would change about the world? I imagine about the time that it takes. One, two, three, you could come up with an answer or something that you would change in this world. Uh, I mean, it's easy. And, and no matter what your political affiliation or your philosophical worldview, there are things in this world that you would want to change. I don't know. It could be the crime in the world, the disease in the world, the wars in the world. Just You might even change the weather. That raises the bigger question, though. Why would it be so easy for you to find? Or to count of three, one, two, three, snap. Why could you find something that you would want to change in the world? Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, liberal, conservative, religious, irreligious, white, black, rich, or poor, there's something you know deep down in your bones. There's something wrong with this world. There's something wrong with this world. And there's a lot that you would change if you could. You don't need a Bible to tell you that you don't, and you don't need a pastor to tell you that, that there are some things in this world that just... Let me talk West Tennessee for a moment. Just ain't right. The question behind all these questions, though, is why? Why are things so wrong? Why, do, uh, why, why is this world so wrong, and how did it get so wrong? We're in this sermon series. We're calling it epic, and we're going to try to answer that question, and we're going to give the solution. The solution that we've been talking about is grace. Grace, the amazing grace, as John Newton called it. And we're in the book of Romans, this magnificent, incredible letter by the man named Paul, he wrote some Christians in Rome, and he makes the case for grace. Now, he tells us why the world needs grace, why I need grace, why you need grace, why we all need grace, and he tells us how grace works. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture tonight that some theologians call the five most important verses in the Bible for theology. One scholar said this may be the most important single paragraph ever written in human history of any kind. Somebody else said that uh, this, is, this section we're going to look at tonight is not only the heart of the book of Romans, but it's the heart of all of the New Testament. Matter of fact, the heart of all of the Bible right here in Romans chapter 3. Ground zero of our spiritual universe. Matter of fact, Martin Luther called the verses that we're going to look at tonight ground zero uh, for all of Christianity. So I think we're going we're to find, he said, he said this, the chief point of the whole 
Bible. So I think you're going to find today that what makes this passage of Scripture so interesting uh, and so vital and so important is, in effect, it describes the absolute best deal anybody's ever been offered ever in the history of the world, anytime, place, anywhere. Now, as you go into this passage, Paul is acting somewhat like a prosecuting attorney in God versus humanity, right? And he's putting humanity on trial. He's bringing the entire human race before God, the creator, judge, and he's bringing an indictment against the whole human race. And he's making the case that every race needs grace. And you're going to love where we're going to go because in, in this passage tonight, we're going to go to a courtroom and a marketplace and a religious altar and see what the best deal is for anyone, anytime, any place. And so before we get into the verses, I want you to see the first thing that Paul is pointing out. Number one, write this down. He points out sin. He identifies sin. Now, last week we were in chapter one and we kind of skipped over chapter two to get to this point where we're at right now in chapter three. But what Paul's been doing is he's building his case against every category of people there is. He's just building his case and building his case that everyone everywhere needs God's grace because all of us spiritually hit a brick wall when we're trying to be good enough for God. And so we're going to pick up in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans 3, verse 21. It says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Now, let me define a couple things for you briefly as we continue. The righteousness of God that we see here in our text means to be right with God, have a right standing with God, and for God to see us as righteous. God determines what's righteous and what isn't. The righteousness of God is that he deems righteous. And then here in these verses, when he said the law and the prophets, when he speaks of the law, he's referring to God's commandments. The simple point is that nobody could be righteous by keeping God's commandments because we have all broken them. And so he puts it this way. Look at the last part of verse 22. Romans 3, verse 22, he says, For there's no difference. There's no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. <clears throat> Paul just unsealed the indictment against all of us. After two and a half chapters, he says, This is the charge. Here's the case against all of humanity. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Now, I understand that we're living in a time where uh, the, uh, the, uh, about the only wrong thing you can do is say that anybody does wrong things. The greatest sin that is out there is to say that someone sins. But that's exactly what Paul here is doing. This, this verb to fall short, by the way, for there's no difference for all of sin and fall short. That's in the present tense in the Greek language. It's something that you're doing. And it's not like all of humanity fell short. All of humanity are constantly falling short. Present tense. In other words, all human beings of every race, rank, creed, color, Jew, Gentile, good, bad, religious, and non-religious, without any exception, are sinful, guilty, and without excuse before God. We're all in the same boat. We all got the same problem. We've all made the same mess. And we're all sinners. And every day we sin. We are falling short of the glory of God. We continuously fall short. We fall short of the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of God. So the question is, Paul, how can we be right with God if that's the case? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How can sinful me be right with holy God? 
How do we break through? Now, listen, this is important. Now, you may think that you know the answer, but I want you to know this. If you don't understand sin, you will never understand the Bible. And if you don't understand what Scripture says, you'll never, ever understand the gospel. And if you don't understand the gospel, you'll never see your need for God, and you'll never understand how to get right with God. It starts with understanding sin and the seriousness of sin and what it is. Sin identifies all of us. We all sin. We're all sinners, and we're all falling short of the glory of God. The, over, the evidence is overwhelming and the verdict is clear. Guilty, guilty, guilty. Every single one of us, we're guilty. We're sinners unless God intervenes. No negotiation, no plea bargaining. You are guilty. So we need a savior. Number two, write this down. Thankfully, it's God who justifies. Sin identifies us. Sinner, 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 sinner. Sin identifies us, but thank God that God justifies. He's the only one that could. Now take a deep breath. We're going to go in some deep theology uh, and some biblical truth here. Hopefully you're going to see not just how amazing God's grace is, but how deep God's love is and how wonderful and marvelous salvation is. And so again, we're going to visit three different places tonight. And the first place is a courtroom. Anybody like being in a courtroom? Amen. Anybody getting speeding tickets lately? Don't call me. That happened this week. God told me that you're going to pay my ticket. No, he didn't. Nobody here at church, y'all. Y'all calm down. <laughs> Romans, you better tell God to tell me. Romans chapter 3, verse 24, look at it. It says, being justified freely, say freely, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And think about that word justified. That word justified in the Greek language is the longest word in all the Bible, and it probably holds the most weight. It's one of the greatest and most important words in all of Scripture from the beginning of time a courtroom has always had two purposes you know what they are to find somebody innocent or to find somebody guilty that's why we have court and the picture is clear if after hearing all the evidence the judge decides that the person is not guilty then the 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 offense alleged against him uh, he's declared not guilty and, he, and he's justified in a sense we all know that a judge should never declare somebody innocent that's guilty that's not a good judge that's not a righteous judge a good judge will find someone who's guilty, guilty. A judge should never declare a man innocent if he knows him to be guilty or guilty if he knows he's innocent. Nobody likes that. Even God doesn't like that. Proverbs 17, verse 15, God said this. The word of God says this. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Yeah, have you heard of any crooked judges? They are an abomination to the Lord. And that raises a huge problem. If that is all that God's word about justification means when we see that he's justified, uh, then we're in big, big trouble. He's a righteous God. He's a righteous judge. We're not righteous. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So he's got to find us not guilty. We got to be condemned. We're not innocent. You're not innocent. I'm not innocent. We know that we're not innocent. How can we be justified? And then amazingly enough, the gavel comes down, not guilty. It's amazing. The best deal you could ever get. And there's no new evidence. There's no alibi. There's no extenuating circumstances. You're a sinner. There's no technicalities. You don't get away with it. So how do we walk out? Not guilty. Justified. 
Now, you've got to understand something. Justification isn't easy. Justification is, being justified is not easy. Guilty people are sometimes found innocent. We know that that does happen occasionally because the evidence doesn't convict them. A judge may find you guilty or not guilty. That doesn't necessarily justify you. Because justification, real justification, in the biblical sense, erases any record of anything wrong that you've ever done. And the record shows we've all done wrong. The president of the United States can pardon somebody. That doesn't mean they weren't a crook, does it? It doesn't mean that that memory is still not there. He cannot reinstate a criminal to the position of someone who has never broken the law. Yet God reinstates us to the position of a criminal that has never broken the law. You're not just not guilty, you're justified. Man, and that's much, much better. He pronounces the guilty innocent and wipes the slate clean. He looks at our unrighteousness and declares us righteous. And then the, the verse says that he does it freely. Freely, you didn't pay any big attorney fees. There were no court costs. There was no restitution. There was nothing that you could do. God justifies freely. And you know that's what grace is, right? Getting what you don't deserve. In the positive sense, that's grace. Getting what you don't deserve. You don't deserve to be justified. Yet God justifies us freely. And that raises another question. Again, if justice and justice demands condemnation and God is a judge how do we who deserve condemnation ever receive this amazing justification well that's going to lead us to two other places we're going to go to the marketplace and to a religious altar but number three first write this down we need to recognize that Jesus is the one that's satisfied listen our sin identified us and God justifies us and the reason for that is because Jesus satisfied our case for us when something is free, it doesn't cost us anything. The reason why our justification before God is free is because it costs Jesus everything. So again, this word, uh, let's go to the marketplace. Romans 3, verse 24. There's this word I want you to see here. It says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That word redemption, right? And remember we're, why we were in the courtroom to begin with. We're, we're sinners, so we're slaves to sin. Long before there was governments, long before there was uh, welfare or food stamps or, or anything to help people that were in debt or in, and poor, the, the, the system was not very unforgiving. What could happen is a person could go in debt, and if they couldn't pay their debt, they could be thrown in a place called a debtor's prison. But if you go even further back than that, a person would have to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay their debt. Right? And so now they're a slave because they couldn't pay their debt. Or maybe an individual was even born into slavery, right? And they have no way of getting out. That's where this word redemption comes from. Redemption is the picture. The word is a picture of when a slave is purchased. When a person who has a debt they cannot pay gets that debt paid for them. And so if you were a slave in this day, either you had to pay off that debt that you owed, or someone had to offer to pay enough to purchase your freedom. That's the picture of redemption. It's a commercial term for the marketplace. Redemption. Just like justification is a legal term for the courtroom, redemption is a term uh, used in the marketplace, born out of slavery. Slavery. Man, we, our master is sin. That's clear. You're a sinner. 
And you keep sinning, and, and you're falling short. You're falling. You are a sinner. We're natural-born sinners, born into slavery, under the domination of sin, just like any other slave. You have no means of saving yourself, rescuing yourself, or redeeming yourself because you're a slave. And Jesus Christ redeems us, brought us out of captivity, shed his blood as the payment for our sin. And there's more that had to be done. Look at verse number 25. It says, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. All right, so we, we're in the courtroom, justification. We were in the marketplace, redemption. And now here we are, propitiation. We're at the religious altar. Propitiation. There's some liberal scholars and theologians that do not like that word when it's attributed to the God of the Bible. They don't want to apply it because literally what it means is to placate someone's wrath. They don't like the picture of God and wrath to placate someone's anger, to satisfy a debt. Remember, we already established that a loving God will be and should be angry at sin. God hates sin. The reason why God hates sin is because he loves us. And he knows what sin does to us. His creation, there's nothing that we can do to satisfy that anger about sin, though. There's nothing we can do to remove the wrath of God on evil and wickedness and unrighteousness and sinfulness. And so there's that place where the wrath of God is joined with the love of God. And how this happens is incredible. You know, normally in a case, if we go back in the courtroom, normally in a case, if, a, uh, if the judge is also the offended party, he has to recuse himself, doesn't he? And then a judge cannot preside over a case where he's also the plaintiff. The plaintiff, he can't, I mean, it just doesn't work. Yet in this courtroom, in this situation, God is not just the judge, he's also the prosecuting attorney, and he's also the plaintiff. Do you know why? Why is he the plaintiff? Look at this next slide. Sin is always first against God. Sin is always first against God. Listen, you, you, you cheat on your income taxes, you're sinning against God before you cheated the government. You cheat on your spouse, the offended party is not your mate first, but God. Sin is always first against God. And here's the dilemma again. God wants to justify us even though we're guilty. And as the judge, he has to see that justice is done. A good, a good judge would do that. A righteous judge would see that justice is done. And then as the plaintiff, the one who has been sinned against, he also has the right to demand satisfaction. And then Jesus steps in, and he's the propitiation for our sin. He satisfies the wrath of God. He sees that God's wrath is carried out at Calvary, and he assures us that sin is totally paid for. And because of that, there is total, incredible, amazing satisfaction for our sins. Jesus did it all on the cross, man. In the courtroom, he accepted the punishment for our sins. In the marketplace, he paid the price for our sins. And at the altar, he took the pain of God's wrath. I mean, when you look at the cross, you see everything. Again, the greatest evidence of the love of God is the cross. The greatest evidence of the justice of God is at the cross. He's just. You want to see where the wrath of God met the love of God? It's at the cross. The point of the Christian life is the cross of our Lord Jesus. Look at this next slide. It was the love of God that satisfied the wrath of God through the Son of God. How does it work? It's the love of God that satisfied the wrath of God through the Son of 
God, God's not, God does not love, I want, hope, I want you to get this, if you don't get anything else tonight. God doesn't love us because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us because God loves us. And that's a big difference. Big difference. God's wrath needed to be propitiated, and God's love did the propitiating. Why? Well, look at verse number 26 in your Bible. He did it to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier, that holy judge and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus I mean, how is it possible that the righteous God, the righteous judge, can find the unrighteous to be righteous without compromising his righteousness or condoning our unrighteousness? Jesus. Jesus. That's how he does it. And all of this was done for us. And all we've got to do is accept the verdict and enter our freedom and live in a perfectly peaceful relationship with God. How does that happen? Well, it's that word that was used in verse 22, verse 25, verse 26, and that word is faith, faith, faith. We do it by faith. Take all that God has done for you by faith. Look at this next slide. Justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. You want to be justified before your God? It's by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. That is the heart of the gospel. And it's solely and completely and uniquely Christian. You will not find this amazing love of God in any other religion, any other faith in the world. Every other faith says, do this and you might be right with God. Do this and things may work out good. But the cross of Jesus Christ says, done, done, done. Justified by grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. There's no other religion in the world that can offer that. And we don't deserve it, amen? And we've done nothing to deserve it. We haven't even begun to deserve it. But we have done, uh, we've done everything not to deserve it. <laughs> Why? Because we're falling short of the glory of God. It's all by faith. There's nobody so good that they don't need to take this offer from God. And there's nobody so bad that they cannot take this offer. This is a deal that's on the table for everybody. It's a, and what I like about it is it's exclusive and inclusive. It's exclusive and inclusive. Only people who can believe it, only people who believe it can receive it. But everybody who believes it receives it. Let me say that one more time. Only those who believe can receive. Right? But everybody who believes receives. It's amazing, exclusive and inclusive. I've heard this story. You've, I've, you've probably heard it too, but many years ago about the man that went to the slave market and it was just breaking his heart watching these slaves being purchased. And there's this beautiful young African-American woman that was up there to be auctioned, and you know how they did it, naked and in shame. And, the, and some of these men started bidding for her. And it's pretty obvious what they were going to do with her. And this one gentleman, he sees this, and it's breaking his heart, so he begins to bid for it. And he bids up, bids up, bids up, bids up, and bids up. Finally, he pays an outrageous price for this young African-American woman. And then he goes and gets his deed of sale. He purchased her. And then he, they brought her to him. Then he tore up her paperwork and handed it to her and said, you're free. You're free. She said, what do you mean I'm free? He said, you're free. What do you mean? You're free. You're free. 
<clears throat> she said, can I say what I want to say? Yes. You're free. You can go. Can I do what I want to do? Yes, you're free. You're free to go. You can do whatever you want to do. Can I go where I want to go? Yes. Then with tears in her eyes, she looked up at this man and said, well, then I want to go with you. Listen to me. The best deal I ever got in my life was Jesus who took my pain, took my pride, took my sin. He accepted my punishment. And when I see what he did for me, I can't help but look at him and say, Jesus, I'm going with you. And I hope you will too. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word and this incredible paragraph, this passage of Scripture in your holy word. Thank you that you justified us. Lord, that you have forgiven our unrighteousness through the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Listen, every head bowed, every eye closed for just a moment. You're here tonight. Maybe you don't have that, man. You don't know for sure that you've been justified. You don't know that you've received it by faith. Why don't you do it tonight? Why don't you? Matter of fact, this verse is not in your notes, and I wasn't going to look at it. Look at this. Look up for just a second, everybody. Go to that next slide, guys. This is a verse. Y'all don't know this, but a lot of times I throw extra slides in there, and I think it may be, that one may be in your notes. But I'll throw just a couple extra slides uh, in there, and this is one of the ones I put in there tonight. How do we get justified before God? We'll believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved in you and your household. One of the amazing things that I love about the Word of God and the promises of God is not just what God says about what He's going to do for me and my salvation and how God is going to work in my life, but the promises found in God's Word that deal with those who are going to come after me. I'm praying for my, my both of my kids are saved. I'm praying for my grandbabies to be saved. And my great-grandchildren, I'm excitedly looking to the future about what God's going to do in future generations of this guy right here. But the truth is, if I'm not right with God, none of that's going to matter. It's not going to matter. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be justified before a holy God who will pour his wrath out on sin. It's either going to, will have been on Jesus at the cross or it's going to be on you in eternity in hell. You have to choose. Let's pray one more time.